When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. This week's episode is a listener suggestion. Thank you to Christy for bringing Cherry's story to my attention. It is listeners like you that keep the podcast going, and I will always be appreciative of the support and kind words. February 22nd, 1985, Cabot, Pennsylvania. Eight-year-old Cherry Mahan got off her school bus but never made it home. Although she was declared dead, her family never received the closure they deserved, because her remains have never been found. Different speculations have come up over the years. However, all leads take investigators back to a mysterious blue van with a distinctive mural on its side, a van that has never been located, despite many decades of tireless searching by the officers involved. This is Cherry's story. Cherry Ann Mahan was born August 14, 1976, in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, to her mother Janice Mahan, the day after Janice's 16th birthday. Now, Cherry's father's identity has never been publicly released. Cherry's father was never in her life, which I don't even feel comfortable calling him that, given how Cherry was conceived. When Janice was 15 years old, she was allegedly raped and fell pregnant. Janice and her parents would go to the police about this, and they simply told her that she was lying and they didn't want to pursue charges. Cherry's father denied being her father, which it seems, given the circumstances, Janice was happy to oblige, never seeking any financial assistance or child support from this man, and this will become important later. Regardless how she came to be, Janice saw Cherry as a miracle and loved her daughter deeply. Janice would later describe it as they were growing up together, and Janice's parents really stepped up and made up for this, supporting their daughter and granddaughter. In particular, Cherry and her grandmother, Shirley Mahan, were super close. Grandmother Shirley gave Cherry her first Cabbage Patch Kid doll, which was Cherry's most prized possession. And after Shirley's husband died in 1981, she refers to Cherry as the reason she kept going. So I imagine she would have been heartbroken but happy when Janice married Leroy McKinnery in 1984 and the new family moved out of the area. Now, this isn't a case of the evil stepfather. Leroy absolutely was obsessed with his stepdaughter. He didn't have children of his own and he really embraced Cherry as his daughter. Hearing interviews with him from the time, you can really hear the heartbreak in his voice. And Cherry loved Leroy. He was the father she never had. The three of them really made this amazing little family. And Leroy and Janice wanted Cherry and their future children to feel safe and run wild in the open. So not long after they were married, the new family moved to Cabot, which is in the Winfield Township of Pennsylvania. And Cabot seemed perfect. No crime, a rural area, in an unincorporated community, and still only a short drive away from Shirley, so she could remain a major part in Cherry's life. February 1985, when our story takes place. Cherry was in the third grade at Winfield Elementary School. 
Janice and Leroy were never concerned about their cherry making friends. She was this bubbly, outgoing child. And within a week of starting the school, she had like a dozen best friends. Cherry was the kind of kid that loved going to school because that was her social time. And she flourished. Her favourite subject being spelling. But Cherry also had a creative flair and excelled at drawing. Cherry loved school so much that her career aspiration was to become an elementary school teacher, just like her third grade teacher that year, Jackie Pilfer. Friday, February 22nd, 1985. Cherry's mother Janice had the day off work. She worked in the housekeeping department of a nursing home. And she was going to do some shopping in the town that day, so she drove Cherry to the bus stop that morning. Janice kissed her daughter and told her she loved her. Cherry was particularly excited for school that day. She and her best friend Lindsay had coordinated their outfits of sweaters, denim skirts and nylons. And Cherry couldn't wait. But also there was this sleepover that night with another friend, the innocence of that age. But these events Cherry had been looking forward to and she was bouncing in her car seat with excitement. Janice also had planned a surprise for her daughter for that afternoon. Santa brought Cherry a Care Bear the previous Christmas, which she loved, but then the family dog got a hold of it and basically chewed its face off. So while in town, Janice was going to buy a replacement and have it casually waiting for Cherry on her bed for when she got home. Janice drove away from her only child with a smile on her face. She was happy and Cherry was happy. There isn't much more a mother could ask for. Janice had no way of knowing she would never get to surprise her daughter with the Care Bear that she would never see her cherry again. The school day was uneventful. The children were keen for the day to end and for their weekend to start. Cherry got on her school bus and rode the four miles back to her home, arriving at the corner of Cornplanter Road just after 4pm. Three other children also got off the bus at this stop. The mother of two of these children, Debbie Burke, was waiting for these three children. Cherry wasn't included in the bulk pickup because her house was so close to the bus stop. It was only 50 feet to her driveway. At this same time, Janice and Leroy are in the house, catching each other up on the day's events. They can hear the bus's engine and the happy voices of the school children. Leroy was going to meet Cherry at the top of the driveway in his truck because it was such a steep and winding driveway. And he had been doing that instead of Cherry walking in the cold. But the day had been unseasonably warm, 55 degrees. So Janice told him not to. Since it was such a nice day, Janice told her husband to just let Cherry walk and enjoy the fresh air. We heard the bus come and five, ten minutes, Leroy's like, maybe she fell, do you want me to go down? And I'm like, go check. And he went down, he checked, she wasn't there. The kids on the bus and the bus driver told Janice and Leroy that Cherry did get off the bus. It's just what happened from the time she got off that bus till she walked back, headed towards our driveway. The last confirmed sighting of Cherry was by Debbie Burke. She saw Cherry walking towards the direction of her home as she left with her two children and their friend. Cherry waving at them as they drove by. Debbie would also later tell police she saw a vehicle she hadn't seen before parked right near the bus stop. Now, whether or not this van is directly involved in what happened to Cherry, it's not clear, but it will become an important piece of evidence in this investigation. This van had a very distinct look to it. It is described as a 1970s Dodge van, either blue or green in colour. 
with a distinctive mural of a snow-capped mountain and a skier airbrushed onto its side. The children on the school bus would also later tell police they noticed this van and they could not remember seeing it before either, or since for that matter. After about five minutes and Cherry still hadn't appeared down the driveway, Leroy decided to make the short walk to meet her. Both he and his wife thought that maybe Cherry got distracted talking to friends or was picking flowers, something obvious that delayed her return. Janice expected to see them both racing up the driveway within seconds, but instead she only saw Leroy, who looked panicked. The driveway in the street was completely empty. No bus, no children, no Cherry. There weren't even any footprints in the snow to indicate Cherry made it to the driveway. Only tyre tracks. Was this from the distinctive Dodge van? Did this van pick Cherry up on her way home? We don't know. We still don't know with any certainty of what happened to Cherry almost 40 years later. There was nobody that was a stranger to her. If you said her name, she thought you knew her. So did somebody know her? Did somebody, you know, conk her on the head and drag her in a car? Or did they say, hey, Cherry, your mom said we're, we're to pick you up and get in the car? I, you know, someday I'm going to know. Initially, Janice and Leroy tried to reason with the situation. Was it possible Cherry got chatting on the bus to a classmate about the sleepover plans that night and simply missed her stop? And once Cherry realised this, she would tell the bus driver and he would circle around and bring her back. But after minutes passed and no familiar sound of the bus could be heard, true terror took over. Neighbours would later report seeing Leroy racing around the top of the driveway, desperately shouting Cherry's name. It would be Janice to call 911, and officers were immediately on the scene to continue the search. This would be no easy feat. As I said, this was a rural area, and there was a lot to cover. Police officers were assisted by firefighters and hundreds of volunteers. Bloodhounds attempted to track Cherry scent on the ground, whilst helicopters searched from above. Despite all of this effort, they couldn't find her. There didn't seem to be any sign of Cherry anywhere. Given this and the numerous witness reports of the mysterious van, police feared that Cherry may have been abducted. It was clear the little girl wasn't in the immediate area. Cherry being a runaway was never really a viable theory. Cherry and her parents were close and she had a reason to go straight home. She was excited to go to her sleepover. The focus of investigators shifted towards locating the Dodge van and its owner. Not necessarily as a suspect, but they possibly had seen something or could give them the piece of the puzzle they needed to find the little girl. The police released a description of the van and Cherry's details, and very quickly, hundreds of sightings of this van were called in. Police did their due diligence and followed up on every last one. Most of these were vague references about a blue van, such as they had seen a blue van but didn't get a licence plate number. And not only in Pennsylvania either, but in 40 other states as well. Police followed up on every lead, no matter how remote. This would have been devastating for investigators because the van was all they had, and they didn't even know if this van was connected to Cherry's disappearance. It may have been just a coincidence it was in the area at the same time Cherry went missing. Investigators were putting all their time and effort into finding this van without any concrete knowledge it was going to lead them to Cherry anyway. 
a month after Cherry went missing. A similar van to the one witnesses saw at the bus stop that day was reported in an attempted abduction in Spring Hill Township, 90 miles from Cabot. A 12-year-old girl was waiting at a bus stop, same as Cherry, when a man in an older model blue van pulled over and offered to drive her to school. In this case, thankfully, the school bus arrived at almost the exact same time, and the van driver quickly hightailed it out of there. But the girl was able to give a detailed description of the driver to police. He would be described as a heavy-set Caucasian man, aged in his early 30s, with black hair, a beard and a moustache. State police in this case were unable to find this van either, despite an extensive search. So was there a serial offender here? Were these two cases connected? The issue being, a car's appearance can be altered quickly and easily, with paint or stickers or murals. And in this case, the girl reported the van to have a decal of a dragon on the passenger side door. Does that mean this is a completely different person and van? Perhaps not. But given police had never been able to find either van, we may never know for sure. And then August 14, 1987 in Belafonte. A van with a skier and snow-capped mountain mural on the side followed two 12-year-old girls into an alley. It was dusk and the van had its headlights out, so the girls aren't confident on the colour of the van. But in this case, a man with a ski mask jumped out and tried to force them into his vehicle. Thankfully, the girls fought back and they got to safety. Again, coincidence? Look, if you know me, I don't believe in coincidences. I think everything happens for a reason and has its place in this world. Look, I can't see the van at the bus stop that day with Cherry not being responsible for whatever happened to her. It obviously wasn't there picking up their child because the other children's mother and friend were there, leaving only Cherry. Why be at that bus stop at that time? I don't know. But if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck... Regardless... You would think a van, any van, with a distinctive mural would stick out and be an easy find, but you would be surprised, as were investigators. They painstakingly went over written registration records by hand. Remember, this was a time before computer databases. And they were discouraged to find more than 2,000 vans matching the description to the one seen at the bus stop the day Cherry went missing. And again... This isn't taking into consideration the very real possibility that the appearance of the van had changed and looked nothing like the blue van seen that day. There's been a lot of vans that we looked at. There was a lot of vans that we actually processed um, forensically and unfortunately, once again, um, didn't really lead us anywhere. One positive to come out of cases like these, it really shows community spirit, especially in small rural communities like Cabot where Cherry lived. The family only lived there for six months, but their neighbours really rallied around Leroy and Janice to show their support. One neighbour, Kathy Yates, started a fundraiser to raise money for a reward for Cherry's return. Rewards are there to encourage people to speak up and come forward with information on the case. This is particularly important in a missing person's case like Cherry's, when the investigation had come to basically a standstill because police didn't know where to look. They had no motive, no suspects, nothing. So Kathy and a team she put together of around 30 people started fundraisers and auctions to raise money for this reward. And within two months, they had managed to raise in excess of $40,000. Which for 1985, this was a lot of money. And according to Google, it would be something like $150,000 in 2023 money. 
Kathy's team also arranged for Cherry's picture and description to be printed on cans and boxes of food to get as many eyes on this little girl's story as possible. It would be around this time that investigators were concerned they had suffered from tunnel vision, and to their credit, they followed up on every lead. As I have said time and time again, stranger abductions are extremely rare. Generally, children are taken by parents or family members or someone close to the family. Given that, Cherry was most likely taken by someone she knew, someone she trusted and knew her routine, knew that she was going to be walking from the bus stop alone. Everyone was a suspect. Police interviewing all Cherry's family, friends and neighbours. In all, police would eventually interview over 1,600 people. But police were unable to come up with any solid leads in the case. It always came back to that blue van with a distinctive mural. The air of suspicion extended to Janice and Leroy, who were questioned extensively. The FBI even requested they both sit for a polygraph, which involved them being basically interrogated for four hours each, but they passed with flying colours. I cannot imagine the pain this would have caused them, given what they were going through losing their only child. The guilt they were going through, blaming themselves, for not meeting Cherry at the top of the driveway was too much. It was said that Janice would refuse to socialise with couples that had children because it reminded her too much of what she had lost. Janice says the unknown created a pain she could not handle, and initially she turned to drugs, selling everything they had. Just to get another high because that pain was killing me. Only Leroy's strong arm kept her from jumping out of their truck on Route 8. I was going to jump out because that car behind me was going to squish me like a bug, and I didn't care because the only thing that I cared about was taken from me. Six months after Cherry went missing, Janice had no choice but to return to work. Financially, she had to. She was so scared she would miss that one call that would be her daughter. She bought an answering machine. The greeting recorded was heartbreaking. Quote, Cherry, I love you. Read me the phone number off of the phone or call the operator and ask her to get the National Centre for Missing Children in Washington. They'll bring you home. Unquote. In desperation, Janice and Leroy even turned to psychics for answers. Some claimed Cherry was still alive and well taken care of. Some told the grieving parents their daughter was dead and buried in a shallow grave near a creek. One psychic in Ohio told Janice she believed Cherry would come home to her soon cruelly getting her hopes up. They just wanted their little girl back. In addition to Janice and Leroy, Cherry's biological father was questioned numerous times. But him being involved didn't make sense. He'd never been in Cherry's life on any level, and he didn't want to be. He denied being her father. And Janice never asked him to pay a dime, so bitterness over child support wasn't a factor here either. Cherry's biological father, and I hate calling him that, In all intents and purposes, Leroy was Cherry's father. But this sperm donor, this alleged rapist, he only saw his daughter once, and that was by complete accident. Janice and Cherry attended the same party as him when Cherry was still a baby. Despite him living nearby in Armstrong County, police also ruled him out as being a person of interest. Janice, however, isn't as quick to rule Cherry's biological father out. She believes he has something to do with her daughter's disappearance, that he knows who is responsible. Whether that means he arranged her abduction and presumed murder or someone he knows did it for spite, I'm not sure. Janice does not go into details. 
He obviously is a shit human to do what he did to Janice as a child, so I would not put it past him committing other crimes and having questionable acquaintances. But, as I said, police have cleared him and do not consider him to be a person of interest in Cherry's disappearance. Janice, do you think there is a connection between the rape, Cherry's birth, and eight years later, her disappearance? I do. I believe that. But I can't prove anything. But today, you believe that the man you say rapes you may have had something to do with Cherry's disappearance? In a roundabout way, yes. Roundabout, because she does not believe that Cherry's biological father is a suspect. Not him personally, but the people that he knows, yes. Police are aware of McKinney's suspicions, and they've told her that the man has been adamant in his denials. As cases like these do, Cherry's disappearance went cold, and days turned into weeks, turned into months, and then years. Under Pennsylvania law, a person can be declared legally dead by a judge after they've been missing for seven years. Janice would not even consider this, as she did not want to give up on the small chance her daughter was still alive somewhere out there. It wouldn't be until 1998, 13 years after Cherry went missing, that Janice would have Cherry declared dead on November 5th of that year. Not long before Cherry disappeared, she had broken her arm in a car accident and received a settlement of $3,500, money that Janice had put in a trust fund for Cherry's future. But after Cherry was declared legally dead, Janice put the money into a trust fund for Cherry's brother, Robert, a brother born four years after she went missing and would never get a chance to meet. The reward fund had eventually grown to over $58,000, Janice donated all of this to the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children. Leroy and Janice may not have been able to find their daughter, but they wanted to put the reward money in helping other children be reunited with their loved ones. Uh, It's amazing after all these years, we still get a lot of um, inquiries. Um, We get a lot of information, a lot of tips. Uh, Sometimes we get a couple a week. Other times it may go months and we don't hear anything. Cherry's disappearance remains open and active, and investigators still follow up on every lead, even after all these decades. One particular lead that was investigated was in 1994. A Massachusetts man was questioned by police after he was accused of abducting and killing one child and attempting to abduct another, and he owned a blue Dodge van. However, this lead was quickly dismissed. It seems as if this man was living in New York at the time of Cherry's disappearance, another dead end. In recent years, in 2014, a woman living in Michigan who had been adopted as a child thought she may have been Cherry Mahan, and she would call Janice at work to tell her as much. DNA testing would prove her to be no relation to the family, another heartbreaking devastation for this family. They were, like, ecstatic. Oh, my God, it's Cherry. Cherry got found, you know. It gave us hope that this potentially was Cherry. We looked at pictures with the family. We also took fingerprints. And ultimately, it was discovered that it was not Cherry. I mean, there are very mean people out there, you know, that try to, you know, get into the story, I guess. In November 2019... Cherry's mother Janice received a handwritten letter from someone calling themselves Pastor Justice. This letter would have been horrific to read. It contained graphic details regarding who killed Cherry, why they did it and where her body was. The letter closed out with, quote, I pray you find some peace after you find her body, unquote. Even more disturbing, the letter arrived on what would have been Cherry's 43rd birthday. 
It was very graphic and cruel to me. We actually, you know, followed up on it for, to the point where we were investigating people outside of the Commonwealth. Um, the FBI got involved and helped us out. Um, we also went to a property that the letter mentioned. And Cherry's mom was right there with them. I just want to be there in case, in case they find her or in case they find just Bones. I want to be there. I want to see it. I want to know what happened. But like all the other leads. Unfortunately, that letter um, as a whole um, hasn't been very fruitful to this point. Now, of course, Janice gave this letter to police and it was sent for forensic testing with the FBI. The property where the letter claimed Cherry was buried was searched using cadaver dogs and a team from Mercyhurst College excavated a mound on the site, but nothing was found. Ultimately, the letter was determined to be just a mean-spirited prank. As much as the blue van is talked about in this case, Janice does not believe it has anything to do with her daughter's disappearance. She believes wholeheartedly that one day someone will come forward with the answers she so desperately wants and deserves. Janice also told me, and this sounds a little bit odd, that she knows Cherry is okay. Either she is in heaven with Leroy and her mom, or she is with someone else. But she believes in her heart that she is okay, and she's hopeful the weight of conscience after all these years will finally get through to someone who will come forward and give police the information they need so they can solve this mystery. At the time of her disappearance, Cherry Mahan was eight years old. She was four foot two and 68 pounds with brown hair and hazel eyes. Cherry was last seen wearing a white leotard, grey coat, blue denim skirt, white stockings, beige flat ankle boots, brown cabbage patch kids earmuffs and carrying a blue backpack. If Cherry was still alive today, she would be 46 years old. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Cherry Mahan, please contact the Pennsylvania State Police on 412-287-8100. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, Like the page so you don't miss an episode and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.